Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm tripping balls, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We have both taken acid before this episode has begun, just uh, FYI. Uh, for a more authentic uh, experience. It's funny because uh, we just uh, did an episode on the producers where a character's name was LSD, and now we're talking about a movie where the characters are on LSD, man. Wow. So this season we've been talking about the films of 1967, and in this episode we're talking about our future cult classic pick, and that is Roger Corman's The Trip, a movie in which a dude takes acid. Yeah, and I almost think we're wrong to include this as a future cult classic because Josh, as you know, being the box office mojo of the group, this thing was made for $100,000 and made $10 million, at least half of which was on its initial run. So it was a huge hit, and then it just went away, and then I think people rediscovered it. But it was like a cult classic from the jump. Yeah, I hadn't realized that this was such a huge hit. I think with these cult classic episodes, we have tried to find movies that built their audiences over time. Although we did an episode on Hot Fuzz, which was also a very successful movie at the time it came out. So it it varies. But you're right. This movie was a massive hit and it really tapped into like a zeitgeist of what was going on at the time, the summer of love in 1967. And that was one thing that Corman as a, producer and as a director was really good at and and I feel like continued to be good at for decades, which was looking at some sort of youth or counterculture trend and thinking, how can I make money off of this? Yes, you're right. But I I think the combination of quality and quantity was uh, at its best in the 60s and late 50s leading up to that. True, true. I mean, uh, maybe Sharktopus doesn't have the same uh, cultural uh, cachet as the trip. Right. So, you know, he went from like kind of classic monster B movies to kind of these like teen renegade movies. And uh, and then in the 70s, it, it kind of moved into the sexploitation and grindhouse And of course, that continued through the 80s. And then, like you're saying, we get more of the uh, Sharknados and and whatnots coming in the later years. Yeah, but I mean, he he still managed to work out what was going to be a thing or what was a thing and how to capitalize on it. And that really happened here. Yeah, I mean, like you're right, Josh, he would he would think and he'd go, hey, that's a thing. Right. Then he'd make a movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like that is actually an accurate representation of his process. What are things? Yeah. Oh, that's the thing. I'll do a movie about right, that. Right, exactly. What are, the, what are the kids like? Podcasts? When is the Roger Corman's podcast movie coming? Uh, I don't know. Um, we can ask our guest, Francisco Menendez, uh, UNLV artistic director of the film department, who will be on later in the show. Yeah, that's coming up. And that's cool. We haven't had a guest on here in a while. But yeah. yes, that's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah. Where's a where's a movie about get guests? I think there's at least one movie called The, <laughs> the Guest, guest, right? Yeah, so. not produced by Roger Corman. So six million dollars, I think, is the initial box office of this film and 10 million eventually, including some re-releases. But yeah, like you said, amazing with that small budget. It made a hundred times its budget back <laughs> overall. And in the initial run, that's 60 times the budget. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And 
even though we maybe are talking about Corman a little cynically looking at trends and capitalizing on them, he took this seriously, including taking LSD himself to prepare to make this movie. Right. And, uh, you know, I rewatched the documentary Corman's World in preparation, and he talks about that and said he had a really good trip. But to do this movie accurately, he needed to have the experiences of what a bad acid trip is like as well. So I think whether it was Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, some of these guys were able to impart that wisdom onto him. Yeah. Although I will say before watching this movie, I assumed that it was a movie about a bad trip. And that's not necessarily the case. This character has some upsetting experiences, but overall, it seems like this is a positive thing for him. You would think so. But, you know, I go to the expert on acid trips, my dad, and I <laughs> talk to him about this. And yeah. I said, Dad, is this film an accurate depiction of an acid trip? And he direct quote, his answer was, nothing is an accurate depiction of an acid trip. So <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's, that's like, I mean, I don't have experience with acid trips, but I think that's like movies that try to capture what it's like to have a dream. Right. And nothing can really capture that. Yeah. He also told me, cause he's an identical twin that when he and his twin brother, Robert were on acid, they could communicate telekinetically, just telepathy between the two, no words, mm -hmm. just thoughts bouncing from one twin to the next. Sure. Well, that's a thing that allegedly twins can do even when they're not on acid. He's told me some stories about that as well. Yeah. Man, we should have had your dad as a guest on <laughs> yeah, the podcast. Yeah, where's that podcast? Well, I, I mean, that's that. a different movie, though. He's not, you know, uh, that's not Paul. even a movie. That's life, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our lead character, Paul Groves, is not uh, communicating uh, via mind talk to anyone here. No, but maybe when we get a when we do uh, Dead Ringers or something, we can get your dad <laughs> on to talk about dad, your dad and your uncle to talk about twin talk. Uh, so this movie, despite being sort of a cultural sensation and a big success, wasn't really a hit with critics. And I am amused here, Bosley Crowther, who. Just by his name. Mosley Crowther. He's obviously a curmudgeon. <laughs> I um, say. In the New York Times, had quite a lot of contempt for this movie. He said, in trying to visualize a notion of what Peter Fonda goes through when he seeks release from professional and domestic tensions by repairing to a very luxurious psychedelic funhouse under the guidance of a friend and embarks on an LSD trip, Roger Corman has simply resorted to a long succession of familiar cinematic images accompanied by weird music and sounds. Is this a psychedelic experience? Is this what it's like to take a trip? If it is, then it's all a big put on. Or is this simply making a show with adroitly staged fantasy episodes and good color photography effects? In my estimation, it is the latter. And I would warn you that all you are likely to take away from the picture is a painful case of eye strain and perhaps a detached retina. Whoa, man, you didn't get it, dude. <laughs> but I think this is a legit complaint because in a way, although he is, is sort of curmudgeonly, he's not criticizing taking acid. He's saying this doesn't probably represent what it's really like. This is a cheap imitation. I don't know if that is fair because I, like you said, I don't think Bosley Crowther is uh, the expert on the subject. No, no, he's not. But I think what's fair is does because like there's a cool rhythm and there's cool editing techniques and, you know, uh, camera techniques going. But does it play itself out after a while? Well, that too. But I mean, I also felt like even early on when it's new, I 
did feel like, and I haven't taken acid. Me neither, Dave. Um, have you? No, I haven't, guys. Oh. All right, so we're all completely nothing uh, accurately depicts an acid trip. Right, right. But as mm-hmm. as your dad said, nothing accurately does. And I definitely didn't feel like, oh, this is a, a an accurate representation of what it would be like to take acid. It it felt like Corman, even having had that personal experience, just thought if I make a movie about an acid trip, that's a an excuse to just go crazy with weird movie techniques, which is fun and cool, but not necessarily accurate. Yeah, but I think you're missing the point. Like, who says this has to be an accurate depiction as opposed to an artistic interpretation? That That's fair. That's fair. It's not a documentary. So Time Magazine, in their uh, unbylined review, said, The trip is a psychedelic tour through the bent mind of Peter Fonda, which is evidently full of old movies. In a flurry of flesh, mattresses, flashing lights, and kaleidoscopic patterns, an alert viewer will spot some fancy business from such classics as The Seventh Seal, Lawrence of Arabia, even The Wizard of Oz. Eventually, in a scene that is right out of eight and a half, Fonda perches on a merry-go-round while a robed judge gravely spells out his previous sins and inadequacies. The photographer's camera work is bright enough and full of tricks, without beginning to suggest the heightened inner awareness so frequently claimed by those who use the drug. So obviously this person, whoever it is, has also not taken acid. Yeah, but they've watched a lot of movies. Right, and, and, and I think the, the, the point I think that's fair here is that this movie goes out of its way to represent the sort of visual and auditory experience of what it might be like. But it doesn't necessarily get the emotional experience as much. Hmm. When I was watching it, you know, you brought up the Seventh Seal reference, and I was wondering, Dave, did did that uh, relate to you instead as Bill and Ted's bogus journey? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. And 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 side note, when I finally saw the Seventh Seal after having seen Bill and Ted multiple times, that was literally all I could think of sitting there <laughs> watching that serious Bergman well, movie was Bill and Ted. I mean, you know, if you're looking at time as a linear construct, then maybe that could be a problem. But it's not a flat circle, Josh. So, you know, then that's okay. I think what you've done is uh, fair and credible. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Wendy Michener in McLean's was a little more uh, open to this. She said, The trip is a sort of psychedelic travelogue for those who want to know what inner space looks like without actually going there. It's no great breakthrough in filmmaking, but director Roger Corman makes a fairly honest stab at it. He has no message, and he doesn't pretend to have one. All the general things that spring from this intuitive rather than analytical approach to self-discovery are there, too. Guilt, fear of death, joy of rebirth, and a heightened awareness of beauty in everyday sights. Some of the camera tricks are corny, but Corman has created one of the most lyrical expressions of sexual pleasure I've seen in the movies. And it's all perfectly decent, too, thanks to prisms and projections. Peter Fonda is surprisingly good as he alternately registers panic, paranoia, wonder, and a wide open passive joy. Well, uh, I think it's wonderful that she referenced inner space 20 years before yeah, that film came out. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, well, you were just talking about time, right. something. But inner space was directed by Joe Dante. Who often worked with Roger Corman. Yeah, Roger, University of Corman. He's one of the big uh, quote unquote graduates. He, uh, he uh, edited a lot of his films. You know, it's funny because, Josh, we grew up in a time like we're saying where the Corman movies were more like exploitative, quote unquote. Right. 
So uh, I think um, we were probably a little surprised at how, how artistic the sex scenes were as opposed to just like, you know, boobs and dongs and butts and, and bangs banging. Well, I don't know if that's an accurate description of any Corman movies even later. You don't think that there have just been ones where it's like, rip a lady's shirt off because she's our prisoner. Come on, man. I mean, maybe, but I think even so, well, first of all, those movies that, that were from our childhood weren't directed by Corman. He stopped directing. Right, right. I mean, and that's the thing is like, we mostly think of him as a producer, not a director. Right. But I've seen quite a few of Corman's films that he's directed. And I feel like maybe way back, I was surprised by the artistry of a Corman movie as a director because I thought of what you were just describing and things that I'd seen that he'd produced. But having seen multiple Corman films now, I totally uh, respect him and uh, expect artistry from his work. Okay, so are you? But you're you're separating him as a director from him as a producer, right? Right. I think that's the thing is that, um, and 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 plenty of those movies that he produced and didn't direct. I mean, you just mentioned Joe Dante, and there's. Tons of really right. respectable directors yes. who worked with Corman as a producer who created artistic works. But yeah, especially later on, because of that sort of opportunism that we're talking about, and he just kind of went with whatever was the thing at the moment, there was more exploitation elements. And yeah. I will agree with you watching this, and this was my first time seeing it. Um, I was impressed with the direction and the rhythm of the movie. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, as you get to it, it, it is kind of uh, repetitive and it really doesn't have a plot. The plot of this movie is guy takes acid. Um, that's a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> and so, but it feels like Corman didn't go beyond that. Like taking acid is a thing. Let's make a movie where someone takes acid and then it didn't come up with anything else. But yeah, it, it certainly is artistically uh, depicted and, and constructed. Yeah, and maybe if we watched it on acid, we wouldn't have those complaints. Maybe not. So um, this was your first time seeing this. Had you seen uh, other Corman movies, other movies he directed or at least produced? I mean, I've seen movies he's produced. Right. Uh, I didn't make a list or anything like that. Okay. And, uh, uh, well, I did see Stealing Las Vegas, directed by our guest Francisco Menendez. Right. In 2012. Uh, and I've seen, obviously, the documentary on Corman, so... But I, there's like a checklist of like some classics I got to catch up on. Wild Angels, The Intruder, one of your favorites, Rock and Roll High School, which he didn't direct but produced. You right. Know? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So um, I am not as well versed as you. And then, of course, uh, a missing link in my Scorsese filmography, Boxcar Bertha. Oh, yeah. There you go. So, Dave, had you seen this one before? No, I hadn't. Uh, it was fun to dive into this. It's weird. It, w it was weird. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Had you seen this one? This one I had not seen, but yeah, I've seen, I was looking on, on Letterboxd. I think this was the 10th Corman directed film that I've seen, which Whoa. is still only a small number of the films that he directed. Yeah. Um, and as far as stuff he's produced, I, I also didn't make a list of those, but I have definitely seen quite a few, uh, including Rock and Roll High School, which is fantastic. Um, and some other stuff with his, I haven't seen that Scorsese film, but I have seen like Dementia 13, which is an early Coppola film. Um, and you know, some other things where he gave a start to, to directors who went on to do great things. Do you have a favorite of the ones he's directed that you've seen? Uh, I do. I would say the intruder, which you just mentioned, which is, which is fantastic. And that was one of the first Corman movies I saw a number of years ago. Cause I happened to get, it was being released on DVD and I happened to get like a promotional copy and I thought, Oh, whatever Corman fun exploitation. I'll watch this. And that movie is really is serious and 
it's suspenseful and it's got a great performance from William Shatner as sort of this uh, 1950s or early 1960s version of like a, what we have is like Tucker Carlson or something who comes in person to this town and like foments this racial tension over segregation and is really just doing it for his own gain. And he's disingenuous about it, but he pits these people against each other. And it's just a fascinating film. Yeah, they go into that uh, a lot in Corman's world, the documentary. And two things of note there. One, that no one really wanted to take the risk on him funding it. So they, he and his brother funded it themselves. And um, they where they shot it, I think they shot it on location in Alabama. People were really upset with the filming and the messaging, you know? Yeah. Because uh, racism, baby. Racism. Right. Well, we yes. just talked about In the Heat of the Night, which is dealing with those themes, and they couldn't film in the South for right. most of that. Right. But the other thing was, uh, Corman made a special mention to say it was probably his most successful critical film, but maybe the only film that didn't make money for him, which, of course, over time it did, but upon its initial release, uh, did not do well uh, commercially. Right. But it's a great movie. And and I mean, not only unexpected from Corman in a way, but Shatner, too. I mean, a real powerful performance from him. Yeah. Some of these are tough to find like that. That and Wild Angels would probably and Boxcar Bertha, the three and Rock and Roll High School. Uh, those are the four <laughs> I want to see like right away. Yeah. So. Well, I haven't seen Wild Angels or Boxcar Bertha. I mean, as far as Corman directing goes, he did a lot of horror. The, the House of Usher with Vincent Price. He made a bunch of movies with with Price, and that's a fun one. Right. Those are the Edgar Allan Poe inspired movies, and those are like very well regarded among uh, certain film arati. They are, and they're good movies. And you know, on the wackier sort of end of things, a little Shop of Horrors and a Bucket of Blood, which are these kind of goofy horror comedies. But a Bucket of Blood is another one where. He is it's all about the sort of like the beatnik scene. And he right. clearly looked at something that was a trend. And that one, as opposed to the trip, uh, makes fun of the trend as opposed to sort of taking it seriously. But still, it was him capitalizing on whatever was going on in pop culture at the moment. And you mentioned how and I mean, it's it's probably his most important legacy that and kind of uh, sparking the independent film boom of the 70s, because he really did like. Wild Angels and this equals Easy Rider, right? That was that's what the direct lineage is, which Corman wanted to produce. And uh, and his money people said, no, we don't want to do this because Dennis Hopper. Yeah, man, it's crazy, man. You know, like, but, you know, that's what you get. But, uh, Josh, I was going to make a point about that. The other point is that the tree, the directing, producing and the writing tree, which includes Jack Nicholson, who wrote The Trip. And was an actor in Little Shop. And Roger Corman was like the only producer director to hire Jack Nicholson for like a decade. Yeah, Nicholson and Corman worked together quite well. Um, the Terror is another Corman film I've seen that he directed that Nicholson is the is Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff. Quite a combination in that film. And it doesn't entirely work. That's one of these Corman movies where it's legendary, where it was like, he had some sets left over and some film left over and like three days on a schedule. And he had Boris Karloff under contract for another few days. And he's like, let's make another movie. And it makes no sense whatsoever, but it's probably good on acid. <laughs> there you go. And well, we should talk more about uh, this film in which the lead character takes acid when we come back here on Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> you just made up a theme song for us right on the spot. <laughs> I did. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. Awesome Movie Year. Thank you, Jason. I think Dave should should stick with the the theme song writing and, you know. It's a good one-time theme, though. It's a jingle. He does the whole song. I just have the bumpers. Okay. Uh, In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we're talking about our future cult classic pick, The Trip, which, as we said earlier, was actually quite a huge hit at the time that it came out. So did this take you to some heavy places, man? You know where it took me to not the drug culture, but how cool Los Angeles looked in the 60s, right? They found yeah. an amazing house to film most of this at. And then the Sunset Strip, which I think might have been of the latter half of this movie. The two best things to me were him just kind of vibing down the Sunset Strip, like totally sensory overloaded. And the scene where he kind of just walks into the house and he and the little girl have a discussion and it's uh just like uh you know milk and you know i i have to go to bed and all this it's a very it just is like a hard stop and like now we're in a different mood and then we're back in the first mood again right right he uh it's it's sort of a subdued interlude there and as soon as he's discovered in that house he's back to running and the music is crazy and he's back into his sort of manic phase of that, but he gets a little respite there. Yeah. So I don't think it took me to like, uh, some drug haven, not that I would know what that is anyway, but, um, but I appreciated the techniques. I thought the music and editing and cinematography were all very good. I just think like this could have been a short film and it probably would have been more effective. Yeah, I mean, and I think that goes in part to what I was saying, where it felt like they came up with the idea of making a movie about a character who takes acid and then didn't come up with a plot for the movie. And it was just, what if this character took acid? I mean, we get a little bit of his background at the beginning. He's a director of TV commercials, and maybe he's frustrated artistically, and he's getting divorced from this wife who cheated on him. But that really doesn't go anywhere. And, and sometimes it kind of explores his thoughts on that. But I feel like it's just as much about random weirdness as it is about that. Right. It, it is not fully fleshed out beyond that. But, you know, we are both fans of this, like all in a day type genre, like one, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, day trip type genre. And some of those go beyond that and like really offer like arcs and resolutions. And some of them don't. And this is one that didn't. I wanted to follow up on the beginning of the film because like I was enthralled right away. Those like those kind of swishes and then zooms. I was like, whoa, this is some pretty cool looking stuff going on right off the bat. And as someone who hasn't seen Corman directorial pictures that you've seen, I was like, this is this is good right off the bat. No, I agree. And I think that opening shot where we realize that it's a shot from the commercial that the Peter Fonda character is making right away is like unconventional and strange and draws you in and and is sort of surreal and off kilter. So I think there's a lot of impressive, uh, I mean, one of those reviews that I quoted uh, kind of dismisses the visual style of this as corny, but I, I think it is, it's impressive and it gives Corman the chance to probably experiment with some things that he wouldn't have been able to do in a more straightforward film. Um, and the way it's all edited together, different, you know, obviously shoots from different places that all kind of uh match up it, it's it's a it's a technical achievement at the same time that it also is kind of tedious after a while yeah and i think like i use the word rhythm i think the rhythm is like really uh in sync a lot of the time josh i also one thing that occurred to me while watching this is the scene where 
Paul goes into the club and listens to the band is so much more effective than the one in uh, Blow, <laughs> Blow Up, which we've also talked about yeah. earlier this season. Right. You know? Well, I think this actually made me think of Blow Up a lot because I feel like both of these movies are feel like from our perspective now, like almost parodies of the 1960s, you know, uh, all of the sort of goofy stereotypes we think of of 1960s culture are on display in this movie. Yeah, I guess the thing is the parodies that we've seen, this is, you know, like, again, this is that whole like what we've seen versus what was and the time is a linear construct, of course, coming back to that. Maybe we are in a simulation. I don't know. Uh Um, No, but no, there was obviously the hippie culture and the drug culture and all that stuff. But but one thing both movies did well is find like a great location and utilize all the space in that location. Yeah, that's true. And going back to that house that you mentioned where uh, I'm not, I wasn't clear if Bruce Stern's character lives in that house or they're just kind of using it to hang out in anyone or all of them lived in it because <laughs> it's like the 60s. Maybe they all live there together. right? I don't know. But whatever it is, that house is great. And at first I thought, oh, this must be like a set they built. There's no way this is a real house, but it is a real house. It is a real house. Yeah. Uh, of course, owned by Grace Slick from Jefferson. No, that's not true. <laughs> I, see, I, would, <laughs> I would believe right. that. It does look like that. And she would probably be at that party. So Right. And that, that great, the like indoor outdoor pool is amazing oh that was great yeah Yeah. and very la and of that time yeah i mentioned the music i really thought and it's mike bloomfield and the electric flag and i really thought they got that like crunchy socal sun-drenched uh drug-infused vibe like throughout i thought that was a very very strong point to this yeah it mostly is there's one sequence toward the end where it's this sort of quick montage of uh things kind of almost recapping the movie that the music turns almost like wacky and circusy that I thought didn't really quite work. Well, that whole sequence didn't work for me because that was montage after a montage, right? And the first, I think that went from that Sunset Strip montage that we're talking about, which I thought was probably maybe the best part of the movie into like the recap of the whole trip. And I was, it had no emotional resonance because you just showed me a much better and much cooler montage. Right, yeah. And I think the music doesn't help there that it's 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 goofy rather than intense or whatever bay of pigs that is the best <laughs> see and that see that moment and and this is when 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 paul is uh imagining himself uh, sort of being judged by dennis hopper's character uh or by dennis hopper playing a different character who knows yeah and um, there's pictures of like che guevara and uh sophia loren that we see and there's a merry-go-round and they're talking about buzzwords like capitalism and communism and go for it bay of pigs, bay of pigs. and yeah. i think but to me that sequence really felt like corman just made a list of things that people talked about in 1967 and threw them all in yeah but you left out the most important point who yells bay of pigs some some little person uh, who's uh, riding uh the merry-go-round yeah, and who's there for no reason it's a dwarf on a carousel Right. And he doesn't say anything else in the entire movie except no. Bay of Pigs. He says the most important thing he needs to say, and then he gets out of there. I appreciate that about it. So, uh, no, but I think that is a sequence where it comes off uh, like not only like self parody, but like Corman doesn't really get the sort of counterculture and what they care about, that he's just 
throwing things out like you know maybe but he didn't write it so do we know or 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 okay or nicholson or whatever but i mean he certainly supervised everything that was going on and approved it yeah although i bet you someone out there has had a trip where they've seen a little person yell a current event uh of sorts well maybe because they've now had this movie in mind and if you're on acid you know if you're if you enjoy taking acid you probably saw this movie and then now it's in your subconscious have you ever taken acid on weed man (laughs) (laughs) uh no josh let's talk about the actors yeah well uh, peter fonda is i mean i feel like this is a tough thing to play because whether or not he's he, like the straight guy who has to go, he's the Corman character. Right? right. Right. I mean, I think they very pointedly have him dress in this like button down shirt with his sweater over it. I mean, he definitely does not seem like he's part of the counterculture, but I think, you know, so much of what happens to that character is just him reacting to things in his own mind. That that's tough to play. It's tough to convey the journey of a character like that. That's all internal essentially. So I think Peter Fonda does as well as could be expected with this. And he really is. I mean, other actors are, you know, coming and going, but it really is all Peter Fonda. This yeah, movie. he anchors the whole thing. He's yeah. in every scene. I think he's in every, I mean, every frame every shot, practically. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he's good. And I mean, as far as the other actors, I mean, they perform the functions that they're meant to. You know, Bruce Dern as the, kind of uh, almost fatherly the guide, the guide, right? Exactly. With his turtleneck and his beard. Um, and I wasn't clear. Is he meant to be kind of like uh, Paul's therapist or just his friend? Or I don't know. But you know what? I like that character. And do you know why, Josh? Because you're talking about like seeing all these other like stoner hippies. Right. And it's like that to me, if that's all we saw of like the people who are on LSD, that would be like a parody of itself. But the fact that he's like this, erudite educated like button down type guy like at least they show that lsd wasn't just like yeah man let's all do it together you know like it was a it crossed boundaries whether they were socio or economic or whatever right that's true and i think that goes to corman at least attempting to sort of take this seriously and be respectful about it and show that it could be used as a legitimate tool whether that brewster and character is actually a therapist or or not he clearly sees it as a legitimate way for Paul to kind of process his emotions over his divorce and things that are going on in his life. So I do appreciate that. I thought it was kind of a bummer that he never comes back that once Paul kind of like runs out of the house because he hallucinates that, that Bruce Dern is dead, then that's it. We don't see him again. Hmm. Well, if you think he's dead in your mind, then it, it, uh, I think you're right. That would have been fun to see him because then he could have been like, you're dead, man. You well, know, or well, something like Dennis that. Hopper tells him, yeah. oh, he's not dead. I just talked to him on the phone. Yeah. So he, he realizes that he's not dead. Yeah, well, yes. Um, but he has a tough time processing that. Too. Yeah, he does. Dennis Hopper is a little understated from what we know Dennis Hopper. To I was going to say days. this is this is uh, if you think this is understated. <laughs> Don't you think this is understated compared to what we've seen of him in the later years? Yeah, in the later years. I mean, we just we just saw him in uh, Cool Cool Hand Hand Luke Luke, where he's quite, you know, he's just a kind of a background character. I think maybe with Dennis Hopper, part of it was that he had to get to a point where he was well known enough that he could be Dennis Hopper and people wouldn't fire him. Maybe. Well, right. And that was always the case. And with Easy Rider, too. Right. And, uh, you know, he was living that edge. Yes. 
but he is certainly perfectly cast as the the hippie druggy guy uh, who is also you know nice and is is helpful especially when paul runs into his place and says oh bruce stern is dead and what's going on and he's like he calms him down and he explains what's going on and everything and uh you know of course he's not wearing a shirt because why would he um, <laughs> i respect that yeah um and he's got all his random people lots of lots of random uh hot women hanging out in his house but the women that we've talked about you know how women in a lot of these films don't have any meat to the parts the women play a big part in this film they do i mean they're still not really fully realized no characters. but they're, they're the just drivers of the emotional journey for him true i mean the, the whole impetus for him to do this in the first place is the fact that he's getting this divorce and his wife has cheated on him uh susan strasberg who plays his wife but again, I feel like she's more of a symbol than a character. Hmm. Well, I mean, I was just trying to make a positive out of the thing, but you just kicked me right in the teeth. No, I mean, if that's the way you saw it, I just kind of didn't. No, I mean, I'm just saying, like, I think he tried. I agree with you that they're not three-dimensional per se, but they're not throwaways either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's true. I get it. They certainly do, especially the, the ex-wife character is really the motivator for everything that happens. And then we have this other woman that he kind of meets and she keeps popping up and then he uh sleeps with her at the end of the movie i guess and she's there in the morning when he wakes yeah, up the I next day he had, like sex with like three women in one day and i was like that's virile but sir. some of them were like hallucination sex so i don't know if that was all real yeah but it could still tire you out <laughs> <laughs> i guess yeah i mean he hallucinates having sex with his ex-wife which obviously doesn't happen yeah um and then the last actor to mention is our friend from Gremlins, Dick Miller, who's in a ton of Corman. He's in like every Corman movie yeah. and he doesn't do a whole lot here. He's like the bartender at the club where they go. And I think he has two lines or something, but it's always nice. And you, you know, if you watch a Corman movie that Dick Miller is going to show up. Right. Um, and it's, it's nice to sort of see him. He's always welcome, but uh, yeah, he's, 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 this movie, he doesn't really do much, but he can be quite funny and he's the star of a bucket of blood and is, is, uh, very good as the like parody of a pretentious artist in that movie which is fun yeah i mean i think a lot of the characters you could argue don't do much in this but yeah i think we've covered the negatives and the positives we have a guest coming up should we rate this thing now or do you have anything else you want to talk about? I, I don't know i mean i think again it's sort of like the movie kind of goes in circles and so you know our discussion could probably end up uh going in circles as well but and uh, many people probably think that about past episodes <laughs> but are they on acid when they listen to those episodes? Are they on acid on weed, man? So <laughs> I did the joke twice. Let's rate it out of five trips, Josh. Okay. Five acid trips. Why not? Yeah. It gets two and a half from me. Again, I was really in, and I keep saying this maybe about movies of the season. Uh, I was enthralled at the beginning. And then I was just like, if this was a 20 minute short film, I was like, this is dope. But then it just it keeps going. And literally, ah, is dope. there you go. Yeah keeps going and going and while there's some cool stuff like it just gets repetitive for me so two and a half but i appreciate the technique and uh and where it leads to in uh 1969 with easy rider yeah i mean i'm gonna give it two and a half also and i i, I agree with you it just is so repetitive and i think part of the problem is that they just didn't come up with anything beyond what if this dude was on acid you know if there was more of a progression to the story or to the character i feel like the the nature of the sort of monotonous imagery, which looks cool, but, you know, then just kind of looks cool in the same way would be more tolerable. So, yeah, two and a half trips from me, Dave. 
I'm giving it three, but I, I have the same criticisms as you guys. I just, uh, it, it's, it's fun for what it is. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, coming up, you had a chance to talk to our special guest. Yes, I have an interview with Francisco Menendez, who I used to be a student of at UNLV. A uh, very educated man on a lot, a lot of different aspects of film history. And he directed a Roger Corman film in 2012. He directed Stealing Las Vegas, produced by Roger Corman. So uh, come back in a moment and listen to Jason chat with Francisco Menendez. Okay, we are back with a special guest that I know for probably almost two decades now. I used to be his student at UNLV, where he is now the artistic director of the film program, uh, Francisco Menendez, and he also is a perfect guest for this episode because he has directed a Roger Corman-produced picture, Stealing Las Vegas, in 2012. Hi, Francisco. Hello, Jason. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. How are you today? I am well. Uh, I, I was not well about... Uh... You know, I've been staying up till four in the morning. There's something amazing about this moment that allows you to exercise your filmmaker uh, interests. And I've just poured it into teaching. And uh, as I watched the trip last night, I thought how brilliant Corman was in many ways. And uh, one of the ways was that whole... Uh, quote about his advice to the cinematographer slash director. In other words, the director should communicate to the cinematographer. And it starts with, you know, how long does it take to get something that would look good? And then he keeps taking it down. He says, when you see an image at the beginning, that's when you start shooting. You know, you don't, you don't spend time moving the lights or doing what have you. And there, there's a certain amount of we've been making movies online using zoom using what we know about the continuity style look right look left it looks like you're together have have production design send props to the other thing so i hand you a fork and you pick up the fork and it looks like we're in the same space and when i watch a roger corman film i'm still as amazed as i was when i talked to roger and really I met Roger at Cinevegas. It was a filmmaker's brunch on a Sunday. What year was this? 2008. Uh, we were showing Primo at Cinevegas, and uh, there was Roger Corman. And I thought, oh, it's Roger Corman, who I know from, uh, I know from his pictures. I know from having seen him in bit parts in Silence of the Lambs. I know what he looks like. And uh, Wes McDowell, who is uh, the programming director for the Las Vegas Film Festival, was going to AFI. So, you know, what I try and do, and certainly in my role as artistic director, is to connect people. So I said, Here, here's, here's the producer of all producers, uh, because of the number of films he's done, because of the talent that he launched, and here is... Uh, someone who had gone through a very cathartic moment in the middle of the program and was producing everything after that happened to him, and that was West. And I just wanted to make sure they talked. And once they talked, I had all these Corman questions 
than when I made my first feature uh, at 26, and I thought I was way, way late into the game. You know, I was at 24, I thought, oh, I'm old. At 26, I'm like, you know, the Spielberg, Orson Welles deadline is passed. I'll never, ever make any movies. And so we're making our, our picture. And most of the directors of photography I talked to had, there were fascinating stories. And uh, one of them was that at the beginning of a picture, he would have the leads pick up the phone from th three-quarter back view, get, walk in the scene, pick up the phone, hang the phone up, and walk. And that is in case something happened in production that he didn't like them or something, he could just write them out by receiving a phone call saying, Jeff, your mother's dead. You must head to Chicago. And he, they were gone out of the picture, and he had... And so I wanted to ask him this question. Did, and he goes, we did do that on one film. And so, so this was, I spent, I don't know, a good 10 minutes asking him all these questions because I wanted to bring him back to class. You know, as you know, we're talking about Spike Lee Soderbergh class a couple seconds ago when I teach Spielberg Scorsese. There's that Roger Corman sure. moment, uh, a formation of Scorsese and Spielberg stealing the B movie and bring it into the into the big screen. And he said, "Do you have a film at this festival?" And one of my people that was just kind of looking just grabbed one of our postcards, handed it to me like in a movie, and I said, "Yeah, primo." So he went to see it. A week later, I got a call. This is Roger Corman. Uh, I think he asked me how much it cost, which I told him. He says, "I would like you to direct a picture for me," and you know. What the hell, right? You think, how is this possible? But this is exactly at the center of the trip. You know, you have all these incredibly hungry people and his genius in his formation as a director was that he decided to go to the acting studio. He understood editing uh, and he understood production, but he realized that if he wasn't going to put himself through the acting process, he would never understand acting. Jack Nicholson, nobody would have hired Jack Nicholson. Corman's the only person that hired Jack Nicholson for 10 years. Right. I mean, Corman, uh, Nicholson cries. So it was a fascinating trip itself. And the movie, as Scorsese says, is incredible if you see it in, in widescreen because it looks weird in you know the old four by three format where it was crammed into uh what the trip gives us is an experience and that's really i think probably in this you know i've, I've come to hate the term content creation and del toro says that we uh we talk about uh all these things in sort of toilet terms he's uh, and certainly corman was 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 like that but his content, despite uh, at I think the the Rotten Tomatoes uh, on on the trip is like thirty three percent, which is really unfair, uh, because it was I was really transported into the experience, and and I think uh, people can't tell the difference between information and experience, you know, like knowing what it's about. Well, I wanted to uh, read you this quote from uh, Samuel Arkoff, obviously the, the money man behind this. Um, he said of the trip, everyone else 
picked it up and as late as this was in 1974 as late as last year they were still coming out with dope pictures and there isn't one single company that made a buck on dope pictures the young people had turned it off but obviously the trip was a huge success it made about a hundred times its budget back why did that one connect was it was was it because it was the first one or was it because it hit something you know in the zeitgeist why was that the one that kind of connected as it did I think I think a movie that costs a hundred thousand dollars and makes ten million dollars is akin to American Graffiti uh, breaking uh, the amount of money or Animal House. It connected. The best thing in in drama and in film are opposites, right? Peter Fonda's straight performance and his journey into this culture. He he literally leads us into these different, I wouldn't say uh, these circles of hell like Dante's Infernal, but he is, he certainly does, uh, does guide us, whether he's this scene, this rather innocent scene of him being in a stranger's house and a young girl comes and preparing the milk and doing whatever. We could not do a scene like this without people saying, oh, this is triggering and it's creepy and what have you. And it's actually quite, kind of an innocent scene. He seems to really be taking care of it. The father comes in, you, we would say now, oh, this is incredibly inappropriate. But the, the scene, these things are haunting. And part of it, what is haunting about it, I mean, we've seen Bruce Stern over dozens of, not hundreds of performances. And it's always Dernsey has a way of overplaying it almost to a parody of himself. And in this movie, I don't know, it's because they're shooting a take and they're moving on. He just is so calm and centered. It is crazy. And also the contrast of someone who was in Wild Angels to just playing this, this opening image, first of all, is of the couple kissing, and then we move to him saying cut, the second camera is really startling, right? And normally, movies about creators are not that interesting. Maybe one of the tricks of the trip is that Roger took LSD himself. Right. The notion of a man who looks like Roger Corman going out and doing some LSD and thinking that someone could, uh, he would dictate what was going on, becomes a celebrity of the film, aside from, you know, Henry Fonda's son, Lee Strasberg's daughter, you know, doing it. And, of course, the brilliance of Roger is having someone else write it, because that allows him... As a director, and this is where the auteur theory sort of exists or, or breaks, you know, there is very much a Cormanesque approach to the film in terms of how the camera moves, stops, and then cuts, and then uh, avant-garde cutting techniques. But, you know, our continuity style since MTV changed the whole notion that you could only stay on a shot you could not cut away. You had to give the audience five seconds or they would be confused. And now we see the trip and it just, again, experience. It just, it just, it just hits us. And it doesn't hit us in a self-indulgent way. 
you know, everybody says in general that he's a king of the bees, that he has no taste, but he does have taste. The taste is just for that kind of prurient interest that he's sort of giving, you know. He, he told me a couple of things uh, that were provocative. And coming out of Roger, he didn't say them in any sort of like, hey, listen, kid, you got to do it this way. He would, he would talk in the very gentle Roger way. And he would just say these statements and you would just, it would, they would make sense. So you brought up a lot of good points about the techniques. And I think you see that in, you know, the rhythm of the editing and those swish pans you're talking about at the beginning. And in the sixties, I think that's when Corman really, you know, really honed in on his skill as a director. Do you think he gets the credit he deserves as a director? Cause like you said, he's the king of the bees. And people from my generation and younger would think of him as a producer, but I don't think he gets the credit he deserves as a director. No, he probably doesn't. But I think to him, what we talk about his movies being an experience, directing was an experience. But unfortunately, it's also a lot of control freaks are attracted to directing. And directing is about giving up control and allowing your collaborators to do their best work and sort of watching them even though you have a plan and you're going to move the camera here you're going to do this and you can do it quickly so i definitely think people don't understand but but it's if he didn't have peter fonda in this picture and if he didn't have susan strasberg in this picture and bruce dern the picture probably would not be as interesting we also have associations with these actors before and after this whether it be susan strasberg growing uh, an old Indian on the side of her neck in the Manitou, or Bruce Stern jumping uh, and committing suicide at the end of Coming Home, or in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like letting us see them young is like a transportation back. I mean, it's a, it's a mishmash of stuff, but the aesthetic is a welcome aesthetic because the continuity style, and by that I, I mentioned that earlier, is basically what we think works in a picture, the rules, you know, the line of action, whatever, and all these things that we go, this is the way we make a movie, it has to be shot a certain way, it has to be done, whatever, otherwise people will be taken out of the experience. He just does not believe in rules. And so he, while he is very good at capturing character behavior, and leaving the camera on character behavior because that that actually saves him time and money. If you actually if you pull uh, Peter Fonda out of a pool uh, and he has his naked rear end and he's he's breathing and heaving and and Bruce Dern is taking care of him. Not only is there a relationship of trust that's being established, but we also get to see the humanity of the subject. But in Corman terms, you have uh, a minute and a half that you don't have to shoot any more coverage for, and then you can move on to other stuff. What I got from my Corman Film School was you make these shortcuts so that you can sp spend your time, of which it gives you very little, on the stuff that matters. Well, you mentioned with Easy Rider, you know, uh, as you mentioned in that Corman's World documentary, I rewatched that too in preparation for this, and Corman wanted to exec produce that. It was, you know, our coffin. You know, I wouldn't pay. He wouldn't pay Nicholson uh, the extra five bucks. But right. it probably would have. We wouldn't have cinema as we know it if uh, if if Easy Rider had stayed. You know the stories of Easy Rider about 
going in a drug-induced uh, stupor to to New Orleans and shooting on 16 millimeter and wanting to get Hopper fired only to have executives go, no, he seems to know what he wants to do. Let him finish the picture. If Easy Rider doesn't happen and isn't taken over by Columbia, we don't, we don't have all this talent that Corman has, you know, given the Roger Corman Film School, uh, has primed the pump and is ready to be accepted. And you have an audience that doesn't want to see The Sound of Music anymore. Mm. You know, they don't want to see prescriptive pictures. They want to see a reflection of their life true and exciting, but still as unstructured as this stuff looks, there are performances, there, there's talent uh, in front and behind of the lens, and that was his genius. Whether Roger Corman deserved uh, more recognition as a director, I think we give it to him uh, in the Academy. I just don't think, you can't really point to uh, probably some of the Vincent Price uh, stuff you could call classics which is kind of a uh, counter of what, what Corman is. What uh, do you have, since you said you watched 20 in a row to prep for stealing Las Vegas, do you have a favorite? Do you have one you want to recommend? I think I, think I looked at Wild Angels and I looked at, at the trip closely at the time because I knew that that was kind of the tipping point. Some of the stuff, you know, you know, I re-saw Humanoids from the Deep, which was as disgusting as it was when I first saw it. And uh, disgusting in a, in a visceral sense, not disgusting as in a, I mean, it's, it's terrible, po- politically incorrect, these creatures raping these women and basically giving us a version of Alien. But I remember uh, I saw, re-saw Little Shop of Horrors, which every time you hear the story, uh, the shooting goes from like six days to four days to two days. You know, who knows? Uh, uh, one of the things I, I learned about Roger and is true about all of us is particularly now that we sort of are presenting ourselves uh, online, we would like people to think a certain way about ourselves. And I asked him specifically about a couple things in his biography. And, and uh, we were walking to the restaurant from his office that he was taking me to lunch. And he said, you know, Francisco, and I asked him specifically about one thing. And I said, what was that like? He goes, you know, Francisco, when people write about what you've accomplished over and over again, you can't argue with them. And by then he was telling me that that that, that particular line in his, in his biography maybe didn't happen exactly how it did. But as we find now with, uh, with stories in cancel culture, Everybody's using the same story and sort of rewriting it on, on whoever it's happening to. So I think with Corman, you know, people grabbed onto stories and created the legend. And, you know, this, his significance, as I, I, I hinted at, is the fact that he started basically what became the new Hollywood of the 70s. But I, I just, I mean, when you talk about the trip, I use the word experience because I think that that's probably the hardest thing for people to understand when they're watching movies on iPhones. The notion of actually sitting in a darkened room with hundreds of people and breathing at the same time and just watching an experience, good or bad, it's an experience. So I want to thank you. We are running out of time, but I just want to 
give you a chance. Are you working on anything else? What are you working on now? I'm actually, I have a couple of things uh, I'm working on. I'm, I'm interested in, uh, you know, I'm doing the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, right now from Iron Man all the way to Endgame. Uh, and we're screening the 20 movies in 3D uh, just for the experience because I'm trying to get the students enthusiastic about being together. We're not judging them. Some of them work a certain way, some, some of them don't. And I thought, you know, I think the time for a Latino uh, superhero, uh, you know, beyond uh, uh, Mike Pena's uh, role in Ant-Man or what have you, uh, uh, we are sort of invisible. Uh, so I've, I've been toying with that. I've also, one of the things that Corman uh, said very clearly, because when I wrote the first draft to Steve in Las Vegas, there were Latinos and they were in their mid-30s. I felt that that was kind of a tipping point to the end of their life. He's like, no, I don't want that. I want 20 to 22-year-olds, you know, surrounded by diversity. And that was a good note. Thank you, sir. It's great catching up with you, and thanks for our, dropping all this knowledge on us. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. And thanks, Jason, for that great interview with Francisco Menendez. Yeah, I mean, I had fun talking to him. Obviously, I know him almost 20 years. Uh, we haven't connected in a while, but I just think he has so much to offer. He's like a collector of stories of film history, and uh, he just has so much to offer. And he was a natural guest for this. So thanks again, Francisco. Yeah, Francisco is great and uh, an important part of our film scene here in Las Vegas. So as you talked to Francisco about, we are talking about our future cult classic pick for 1967, The Trip. And uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the legacy of this as in terms of Roger Corman, and you talked to Francisco about that. Corman has had just an astounding career. As a director between 1955 and 1971, he directed 52 movies. That's amazing. And how many did he produce during that time? It's probably double that right yeah i don't know about that period but overall i think he has more than 300 almost 400 I yeah think it's it's insane and like you said he adapts to the times so while this might be like our favorite period because of the quality like hey hey man keep making sharknados bro that's kind of fun yeah to be fair sharknado is not a corman production it's a sharktopus is uh, what i was uh, uh. mentioning earlier um, That's a thing. That is a thing. Yeah, sharktopuses are common. And so obviously <laughs> we had to have a movie about them. Corman did return to directing for one final film in 1990 called Frankenstein Unbound, which I have seen and is a, kind of an interesting take on the Frankenstein story. Tell us about it. Uh, it's a weird sci-fi time travel version of it. It doesn't quite work, but it's got uh, Raul Julia as uh, Victor Frankenstein, who does a good job. And... Um, yeah, I, I several years ago, I did a project where I watched tons and tons of Frankenstein movies, and that was one of them. And so they all kind of run together. But it's, you know, it's a respectable return. And it shows that Corman still, he, you know, he could have had it if he just wanted to be a director for the rest of his career. Did you make a collage of Frankensteins? Like, did you maybe take a piece of, uh, like... Oh, oh paper I, I see what then, you're saying. You know, like a Frankenstein's monster yeah, of Frankenstein maybe. movies. Yeah, that would be a great, that would be cool to see. So. And no, I just wrote some blog entries about the movies. Not as cool. No, so, I, I'm but, lame. But yeah, Josh, I agree with you. And it's almost, it's interesting because like he, he could have been a director the whole time. 
and you know in that documentary they all talk about how he could have made that next jump because like nicholson made the jump and hopper made the jump all of the actors made the jump why didn't corman ever get to that next level but he's just such a essential part of american cinema and i kind of love the idea of like you know hey kids let's go put on a show he really embodies that more than anyone i think in uh the history of movies of this time like but when we covered chaplin we talked about like you know how much of it was just like well this is a new form i'm going to just shoot everything i can and i feel like corman was doing a similar thing at the beginning of his career yeah that's true um and i think i don't know if he would have been i think he might have lost something if he tried to become a mainstream hollywood guy like jack nicholson and dennis hopper and so many of the other people that he worked with and i feel like even a lot of the directors the big directors that he gave a start to lost something when they went and made bigger Hollywood films. I'm going to disagree. Okay. So we're talking about Scorsese, Coppola, right? Who else? Maybe not them, but you know, more B movie people like Joe Dante. Joe Dante. Sure. Although he did some fun stuff, like, you know, and I feel like Jack Nicholson succeeded in spite of the system, right? (laughs) No one was ever like, he sold out. He did this. He just did what he wanted to do. Right. So was there a way for Corman to do that? I don't know. Maybe like you're right, there are some who did and some who didn't, but I I think it at least would have been interesting because he has shown that he has that skill set. Right, right. And he did partner with major studios on some of his productions uh, in later years. And and even, you know, we're joking about those more recent films like The Sharktopus and those uh, ridiculous monster movies. And those were all made in partnership with sci-fi, you know, giving him the money. And maybe that's not big respectable hollywood but it is working within the establishment to make films yeah in my interview with francisco i read him a quote from samuel z arkov who was one of the big money men at aip who funded a lot of his movies and i found this other quote from him which is the arkov formula for making a movie baby and it's an it's an anagram a is for action make it exciting (laughs) r is for revolution have controversial themes K is for killing. You gotta have some violence. O, oratory, notable speeches and dialogue. F is for fantasy, baby. Act out common fantasies that people have. And F, fornication. You gotta have the sex appeal. That's the Arkoff way. I mean, I think that's probably the Corman way in a lot of these films too, that he uh, he knew how to do it. And I think that was one of the things too, right? When he would work with these directors like Scorsese or Coppola, uh, people who had artistic ambitions, and he would give them freedom as long as they included those essential elements, the the sort of B-movie elements. Yeah, and I think he gets his due reverence. Obviously, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Oscars, the Academy of Motion Pictures and Sciences of Movies. (laughs) That thing, yeah. Which is a thing. Um, But, you know, I don't know where... You know, when we talk about the titans of film, he's never really mentioned and he's contributed a lot. He has. And he's he's still around. He's 95 years old. Uh, His last credit as a producer was in 2017. And I don't know if he's really active. I mean, if he's not like we can allow him his retirement. Yeah, he's in his 90s, right? Yeah, he's 95 years old. But even so, it would not surprise me to see Roger Corman's name as a producer on a movie right now. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully we will. But I'm, I think his son has taken over the business, right? I, yeah, maybe. I know his, he worked with his wife a lot as a, as a, a producer. 
Uh, Julie Corman, I think was her name, who produced a lot of his company's films and produced films on her own as well. So it's entirely possible that that's happened. It's it's a whole legacy that he's got going. And on. I just want to reiterate, because uh, I think we've pretty much covered everything here, but Wild Angels and the trip leads directly to Easy Rider, which d- leads directly into New Hollywood in the 70s. And Corman wanted to produce an executive produce Easy Rider with AIP, and they turned him down. And, you know, um, he kind of had that argument with Nicholson over money. So there were like these mistakes that could have elevated the whole thing. But Easy Rider, you know, is is such a major film into what became the future of that, of what many say is the greatest decade ever for filmmaking in America. So, you know, Corman is essential in that way. Right. And of course, Nicholson, Hopper and Fonda all working on this film, you know, and and able to then work together on Easy Rider. I thought it was kind of fascinating that Nicholson, he had a bunch of writing credits early in his career. And he wrote two more movies after this in the next like couple years, including uh, Head, the Monkees movie, which is possibly trippier than The Trip, uh, if you've ever seen that. And um, which I wouldn't really recommend. Um, but then he just stopped and I don't really know why that would is. I know. And then he directed one movie, I think later on. Yeah. Well, he directed a movie in 1971 called drive. He said that he also co-wrote and then he had a couple other directing credits going South, I think. Yeah. And then he directed uh, the two Jakes, the Chinatown sequel in 1990, mm. but he wasn't a writer on either of those films, but yeah, I mean, it seemed like whatever the reason, and maybe it was just an opportunistic thing at the time where if he was going to be in a movie or have a chance to work with someone, he would take the opportunity to contribute to the writing, but that wasn't his main interest. I don't know, but it seemed like I was surprised how much of that he did early in his career and then stopped. I think that you're right. Of course, he is the most decorated actor of American cinema history with awards, right? He's the only, well, it's Tom Hanks now too, three-time Oscar winner or something. Yeah. He's got three and like, you know, when we talked about Paul Newman and Cool Hand Luke, like Nicholson's on that top line right absolutely and peter fonda big comeback he now did. he's not now because he's well, dead no, that would yeah. be an even bigger comeback <laughs> that'd be pretty amazing <laughs> but like you know he was always kind of around and then he came back with yuli's gold and got a ton of acclaim and an academy award nomination and he, and he had a nice end to his career I think. yeah i mean he worked steadily though all that time i mean he had a kind of critical comeback with yuli's gold um but had been working and then continued working in a whole range of stuff, whether it was critically acclaimed indie films or B-movies or on TV or whatever. And I think that kind of speaks back to this time period of like the Corman group and University of Corman. Like these guys had to make money. This was their job, right? So whether they were, you know, living the high life or just taking a gig to pay rent, they were going to work. Right. Have you seen Yuli's Gold? Yeah, it's very good. And he's very good in it. Yeah, I haven't seen seen it. it? I know I should see it. Your face. Okay. (laughs) Can Thank I throw you. one quick legacy thing in here? Yeah, guys? please. Is it about Yuli's Gold? It's not about Yuli's Gold. Have you I'm seen sorry. it? I have not seen it. Double that. your face. Damn. Well, uh, when Josh was talking during Cool Hand Luke about the uh, the sample from Guns N' Roses' Civil War and how big of a thing for you that was, the Give Me the Thorazine Man line is from Ministries Just One Fix, and it kind of blew my mind when I heard it in this movie. So <laughs> I don't know that Ministry song. Oh, that's so. one of their biggest hits. Okay, yeah. or maybe I do know it and I don't realize it. probably just don't realize remember. it. It's yeah. slowed down, but it's like, I was like, no. No way. <laughs> Dave, you should write a song and sample Bay of Pigs. <laughs> that would be a fun song. <laughs> so uh, Bruce Dern also liked Peter Fonda. 
I mean, and he's still alive, Bruce Dern, and still working. I think he has like two or three credits for this year. Oh, man. He was so good in Nebraska a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And got an Oscar nomination for that. But I mean, I think like Peter Fonda, just works so steadily. And maybe sometimes he's in a movie that's an Oscar nominated performance and people think, hey, remember Bruce Dern? But he's just been doing stuff the whole time. Susan Strasberg was Lee Strasberg's daughter, right? And Bruce Dern's daughter is Laura Dern. So they, daughters, man. <laughs> yeah. The point is, um, men have daughters? children with women, uh-huh. and sometimes they're boys, and sometimes they're girls. Man, and if they're girls, they're daughters, and some of these daughters grow up to be famous actresses. That that they do. So, I mean, the other legacy, of course, of this movie is that it sort of set the tone for what drug trips look like in movies and, and ripoffs of this film about people taking drugs and stuff Did like that. Did you feel, uh, I got a little Requiem for a Dream rhythmically in there. Yeah, it could be. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I could see that. And I think that was one, I don't know if it was Corman who was quoted or, or someone who who mentioned it, but that. Corman, because this was imitated so much, decided he wasn't going to do any more drug trip movies because it was it's been done. Right. To me. And, and I mean, also, they made 100 times their budget back. Well, so. that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I just think there was something very edgy and independent at a time. And, and that's what I, that's how I like to look back on the Roger Corman experience, Josh. All right. Well, that is the trip, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Thanks again to Francisco Menendez for joining us. And uh, you can check us out on social media. You can. We're at AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram, Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Someone should put that thing on drugs, maybe wake that website up. Also, I have another podcast called Food and Loathing. The title, of course, referencing fear and loathing. Hunter S. Thompson, he liked drugs. Oh, he sure did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where can we check out Francisco Menendez? Well, Josh, if you want to watch Stealing Las Vegas, you can rent it on Apple TV for $3.99 or watch it for free with commercials on IMDb TV. Awesome. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And, uh, you know, for your next trip, maybe listen to some of my music. Check out David Rosen, uh, bydavidrosen.com for all my music. Yeah, Dave's music is pretty trippy, actually. Yeah, yeah when I hear it, I want to do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we have coming up in our next episode, Jason? Josh, it's our Audience Choice Award. And uh, It's not an award. You always say that it's an award. To me, it's an award because have any of these films ever had... Anything more prestigious thrown upon them, thrust upon them, given to them than the love of our audience. Yes. <laughs> Josh, we did, uh, it was some from stage to screen. And it was, uh, the choice was about three movies that started on stage and then went to, wait for it, screen. What? And the winner was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And as you know, Josh, I uh, do not try very hard in business, but I also don't succeed very much. (laughs) So tune in next time for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Awesome movie year.